Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. You're listening to the Science Focus podcast from the BBC Science Focus magazine team. We're the UK's best-selling science and technology monthly, available in print and in several digital formats throughout the world. Find out more at sciencefocus.com or look out for us in your app store. Hello and welcome to the Science Focus podcast. I'm Sarah Rigby, online assistant at BBC Science Focus magazine. With me today, I have editor Dan Bennett. Hi. Managing Editor Alice Lipscomb-Southwell. Hello. And Commissioning Editor Jason Goodyear. Hiya. We're going to tell you all about the November issue of the magazine, which is on sale now. So first up, we've got Dan, who's going to tell us about our cover feature. Yeah, so this month we um, decided to focus on food myths. Um, And the reason for that is essentially we have... uh, one of our sort of regular contributors um, is a guy called Tim Spector. And you might know him recently. He's uh, he's appeared in the news uh, as a result of his COVID tracker, uh, COVID symptom tracker app. Uh, and he launched that recently to try and get a handle on some of the sort of the wide ranging symptoms that people were experiencing uh, at the start of the pandemic. Uh, but before that, he was particularly interested in food and diet and particularly uh, the thing that we all noticed that, you know, you can basically have one friend who eats a ton of food and uh, is lucky enough to remain incredibly skinny and another who just has a normal diet. Uh, I'm going to say that's me <laughs> and ends up being a bit overweight. And so he, he over sort of course of a couple of decades 
um, studied this. And, and in particular, he looked at twin studies uh, where he would get pairs of twins, feed them the exact same diet or feed them different diets and find out how that affected their weight loss or gain. And um, what he observed was there were significant differences. Even when you gave them the same number of calories, the same amount of fat, carbohydrates, proteins, etc., he found that these twins were putting on different amounts of weight. And what he could put that down to, he thinks, is the microbiome. So this is the kind of colony of bugs and bacteria that live in and on you, and in, in particular in your gut. So what it seems to be, the, what seems to be the case is that these bugs were essentially affecting um, individuals, the, w- the way they were processing carbohydrates or calories or proteins. And then there were other factors like, you know, did they have high metabolisms where their genetics um, sort of driving a really hungry metabolism, which could affect how you lose or gain weight. Um so in the end, he he basically has recently published uh, this new book um, called Spoonfed, and in it he kind of sums up his uh, sort of I think you know many decades of research into this area, and breaks it down to all the sort of food myths that we all encounter on a day to day basis. I mean, the most famous one probably is that breakfast is the most important meal of the day, uh, and so in it we we we. Um, we got him and we got him to share his sort of favourite or I suppose most persistent food myths and got to sort of bust them piece by piece. Uh, So I'll share with you sort of my two favourite, my two favourite pieces. One was that uh, calories, which is sort of a a bit of a pet topic of my mind, but calorie counting doesn't work. Um, Now we've all heard, you know, men are supposed to have two and a half thousand calories a day. Uh, and women should consume 2,000. And as long as you eat less than that, you shouldn't put on any weight. And if you eat more than that, uh, then you're going to get fatter. Um, But the more you dig into this idea of calories and where they come from and how we burn them, the the more you sort of find out it's it's, it's actually pretty crazy. So for instance, um, our metabolic rate, which I talked about earlier, which is how quickly we burn these calories, so how quickly we turn the sort of sugars, proteins, and fats, and stuff we put into our body into energy can be can vary by 25% between people. So that means I could, you know, I kept, you know, comfortably get through 2,000 calories without much effort, but another person sat next to me can eat the same amount and still put on weight. Um, but it gets sort of deeper than that. If you look at where the, the calorie sort of first started life, it was actually in, in the 19th century, uh, when this idea sort of first came about. And it shocked me to find out when I was researching this that we still use many of the calorie measurements back from the 1900s today. So when you, yeah, so when you when you see a ready meal and it says, you know, um, it contains 437 calories, uh, some of the times, and, and it, obviously it varies from countries to countries, they're just saying, okay, well, there's there's 30 grams of potato in here and Atwell, who was the scientist who originally came up with him, his original measurement for how many calories a gram of potato has uh, was, you know, 30 calories. So times it by this this weight, and therefore this is how many calories it has. Uh, which is which is crazy because not only uh, obviously 
do we know a lot more about food now and how it breaks down? But it doesn't take into account so much. For instance, a cold potato uh, contains less calories or fewer calories than a hot potato. So when we when we account for how many calories in something, we're essentially saying that everything inside it can equate to a calorie. So if you, I mean, a basically simple way of putting it is if you set fire to this potato, how much energy, energy does it produce? And in the case of potato, if you've got a lot of uh, starch and carbohydrates, these are kind of complex molecules. Uh, and as they as they cool down, they become essentially stronger and more harder to break down bonds in these molecules. And so therefore your body has a harder time getting and unpacking the sugar from that potato. Whereas if you have a hot potato that's more cooked, you know, and, and you can tell the difference in the taste, right? A hot potato tastes sweeter than a, than a cold potato. Uh, definitely don't eat raw potatoes, by the way. That's very dangerous. Um, but uh, the, the, the raw potato essentially just has much less calories in it. And so it tastes um, sort of more bitter and less sweet. So what was this Atwell guy? What was his his method? Was he just like getting different foodstuffs and setting it on fire and seeing, I don't know, how, how much it heated up water or something? How did he determine it? So, yeah, he had a couple of experiments. So his first experiment was uh, essentially what was called uh, a bomb calorimeter. So, yeah, the idea was you put something in a chamber, you burn it, uh, you combust it is probably more accurate with something, you know, quite an intense explosion. And you see how much it heats the water in this chamber. So, sorry, I'll put, put that another way. So you, you get your food in a chamber and you surround it with a big chamber of water. And as you burn the food, you measure how much the temperature surrounding that food goes up in temperature. Um, but he also did some other quite uh, interesting stuff where he fed uh, people the average American diet of the uh, time, uh, which, uh, and I'm going qu- <laughs> to quote some of my notes here, which uh, I-, I read somewhere was um, molasses cookies, mm. barley meal and chicken gizzards. Wow. Yum. <laughs> uh, and he, could, he fed that to a group oh. of students uh, over like the course of two weeks. Uh, and they would eat, sleep, and exercise inside this chamber. And so he would, he, and then he was measuring how much they would heat up that chamber uh, to get a sense of, you know, what they were burning. Uh, because obviously the human body burns some of the calories and some of it comes out as waste. Um, but it go, it, I mean, it goes, goes on further and further. The more you look into the calorie kind of idea, the less it makes sense that we're kind of slavishly following what's on these packets and then ignoring everything else, like how many vitamins are in it, uh, what kind of protein content is there. Uh, and actually, when you think about people's um, you know, individual differences, uh, it actually starts to look at a wildly um, sort of inappropriate way to determine what you eat. And I'll just leave you with one fact. Um, which is, I think, when this was sort of first adopted in the US, I think in the, I think it was, say, the late 60s, I want to say, when it became passed that, you know, everything you sold had to have a calorific uh, labelling on it. What proceed, what, what went after that was the, the, the steepest growth in obesity no way. Uh, since records began. Because, because people started 
solely focusing on calories and ignoring everything else. Dan, you promised us two food myths. What was the second one? <laughs> oh, yeah. So the, the other the other is uh, my favourite. It didn't make it into the mag. Um, so if you want to know more about calories, definitely pick up a copy. Uh, and that is that coffee is good for you, uh, which I kind of suspected because obviously um, I drink a lot of it. But uh, <laughs> I was kind of surprised because you sort of, you think of coffee, you think of heart palpitations when you have too much um you think of stress and you know uh getting getting wired um but actually they found that um in some some broad studies of kind of american and japanese populations that drinking a uh, uh, sort of this this also surprised me moderate coffee drinking which equals 3 to 4 cups a day uh which seems like a lot to me um reduces your chance of death or your risk of death. I suppose we're always a risk of death, but reduces your sort of risk of death by 8% and heart disease by 20%. I remember I read a study in Italy and they were saying like something like having five espressos a day would uh, really drop your chances of getting liver disease. Oh, really? So so we don't know why. We don't know what it is that's doing it. And it, it may not even be the caffeine um so coffee is uh but you know it's full of antioxidants but um particularly something called a a chemical called a polyphenol um which tim sort of suggests uh could be beneficial um because this the, the polyphenols are feeding the microbes in our gut so it all sorts of comes round about back to this idea that you know as well as our own digestive system, there's loads of little creatures inside us that are ju- digesting the things we eat. And generally speaking, if you can, if you can look after them, then you'll be in good health. Um, but also, also, I think, you know, the, the piece really establishes something that I think is really important now because we all read a lot of food science, you know, in our, in our jobs, and we see that the, the information changes you know, almost on a, on a weekly basis. And I think it can be a bit, you know, how, how do I figure out what I should eat? If I can't count calories, what can I do? If I can't, if, if, if I can have eggs one day and then the next day they're bad for me and then again, they're good for me, what should I do? And Tim had a really good, um, sort of has a good answer to this in his book, um, which is we need to start sort of ignoring the scientists <laughs> which I obviously shouldn't say here. I'm not sure that's uh, something we want to be uh, <laughs> advertising <laughs> as a science well, he, magazine. <laughs> well, he, he says in his own book, he says, don't listen to scientists, uh, which from a scientist obviously uh, surprised me. I think we should clarify only when it comes to diet. So what he advocates for is listening to your own body. Um, he said, there's so much difference. We're not there yet where we're, where we're, we're not at the point where we're able to, I mean, we're pretty close, but, you know, look at your poo and decide <clears throat> exactly what you should and shouldn't be eating. Um, that's, that's down the line, I think. Um, but in the meantime, we need to kind of, you know, skip breakfast, see what happens. Um, eat a big carby, heavy meal, see how you feel afterwards. If you feel fine, then, you know, don't, don't believe the hype that, you know, carbs are going to slow you down. 
I equally, if you if if you do feel tired and you do feel kind of uncomfortable after eating a big kind of you know steak and mashed potatoes, then that's telling you that your body digests that in a certain way. And so he advocates, you know, obviously do do read about science, please. But your biggest kind of helper is your own your own senses in your own body. All right, Dan, thank you very much. Um, some of our listeners might have heard of some of this before because Tim Spector did a live event for us. He hosted the very first BBC Science Focus live event. And we've got more of those coming up. So please watch out for them. Um, and now Alice is going to tell us about sea slugs. Hello. So, yeah, in this issue, um, we've got a great article by one of our marine biology writers, Helen Scales. Um, now, she talks about uh, sea slugs or nudibranchs in this issue. Um, and they're one of my favourite like marine animals because they're so cool. Um, I mean, they're just really brightly coloured. They've got really interesting biology. Um, and yes, you can sort of find out all about them in the issue. Um, I think probably my personal favourite that she features in there is uh, something called the leaf sheep. Now, this sort of has to be seen to be believed. It looks like almost a teeny tiny little sheep, um, <laughs> but it's a sea slug. And it's even got like a little face by the looks of it. So it looks like this little sheep. Um, and it's quite interesting because it grazes on algae. Now, those algae that it eats, it'll uh, sort of harvest the chloroplasts from there. So then if ever it gets to the point where there's not enough food for the leaf sheep to eat, then it can just use the energy from the chloroplasts and it can still survive. So that's pretty clever. Um, so it can photosynthesize like a plant? Yes. Wow. Wow. Yeah, it's almost just like harvested those chloroplasts and it'll just like let them photosynthesize within it so it can get the sugars um, from there to keep it alive. But it's tiny. I think it's only about sort of five centimetres long. You know, it's a little tiddly thing. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's very cool. So the, the little uh the little leaf sheep um that, that crawls around, um it, the the process that it, it does, the 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 nicking the the chloroplasts, it's it's pretty unique, isn't it? It's is it is it it's not really found elsewhere in the natural kingdom, is it? Yeah, there's a few examples of it, but there's not many animals that do that sort of thing. Um but within the sea slugs, again, they're quite interesting because as well as nicking chloroplasts, um, that's sort of one really cool thing. But then there's some species and they'll actually feed on venomous animals. And they'll sort of steal those sort of <laughs> venomous cells and they'll use those within their body then as a defence mechanism. Um, wow. So it's completely species... outwitting the animal's defence mechanism. I know. It's like, <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to take that from you and use it against you. <laughs> um, yeah, there's one. It, wasn't, it didn't make it into the magazine, but it's called the Blue Sea Dragon. Now, this one lives out in the open ocean. It's quite cool. Um, it sort of floats upside down on the surface of the water and just surface tension is just sort of holding it there. Um, and it's got all these like blue tendrils coming off it. It's really cool. Um, now, this one is sort of living out in the open ocean. You don't really get it on coastlines unless it dies and washes up. Um, but that'll feed on um, Portuguese man of war. Um, like, yeah. So they're like the, the man of war, like super venomous. You know, if you end up getting attacked by one of them, it's really painful and you can die. That's bad. But this little tiny nudibranch, it will just sort of feed on it. It'll harvest all those little venomous cells from the man of war, um, stick them into its own tendrils. So if anything then brushes up against it or you know attacks it, it can just sting them. So no way. Yeah, what's really good is it because um, it harvests so many of these stinging cells, it actually almost becomes more venomous than the man of war. So it's like even worse. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> 
that one was really good. And I said, they're so beautiful, these animals as well. They're just, yeah, they look like little dragons almost that just float around mm-hmm. in the sea. I was looking at um, some of these sea slugs the other day and I found out about one called the bunny sea slug and it is the cutest little thing you've ever seen. It's just like, if you just imagine like someone's drawn a cartoon bunny and then stopped before they've put on the legs or the feet. <laughs> so it's just a little tiny little ball of fluff, like a little cylindrical ball of white fluff um, with black spots over it. And it even has two little ears. They like I don't know what they're for. I was only looking at pictures, but just our amusement. It's, yeah, it's the cutest thing. Yeah, <laughs> they, do, they do all look yeah. sort of loosely like they belong in a in a Ghibli kind of yeah, yeah. Anima- animation. <laughs> um, so, but they are they're like Totoro. <laughs> yeah, they, yeah, yeah, they do. <laughs> um, but they are kind of they're quite hard to find, aren't they, Alice? Um, I mean, they are quite hard to find. They are found all around the world. You even get them, you know, in coral reefs. You'll get them on beaches in the UK. They'll be in sort of the Arctic, Antarctic, deep seas. There are a lot of species of them. I think there's more than 4,000 species. So there are a lot of them. But it's one of those, because they're so well camouflaged a lot of time, you have to really look for them. Um, now, the one species you can get in the UK that I really like, I mean, we've got about 100 species in the UK, but um, I really like the sea lemon. Uh, so-called it looks just like a lemon it's sort of um you know about 10 12 centimeters long it's all sort of warty and yellow and knobbly um and you can find that if you go to a beach you look down on the low shore have a little poke around in the seaweed lift some rocks up um and yeah, you might find it there and am i i remember from reading this is there do they they sort of taste the water uh through something on their head so their, their tongues effectively like on the on their face yeah, I mean, like Sarah was saying earlier, the little bunny ears, they're like rhinopores and they'll sort of, they're on their head and they'll use that to sort of detect things and taste the water. And if they're sort of a forked shape as well, they can then sort of detect in what direction any smells are coming from. Oh, so quite similar to like a snake's tongue. Yeah, a little like that. Um, so Alice, the most important question, can I keep one as a pet? Um, probably <laughs> not. Um <laughs> I mean, if you were an incredibly good marine keeper, then maybe. But, um, you know, these are marine animals, so you need to have good salt levels. You've got to have nice, clean water for them. Lots of water changes. And you need to have, like, corals and seaweeds and things like that for them to feed on. So probably a bit hard to keep as a pet. But you might find one at the beach. You can just hold it and go, oh, you're really awesome. <laughs> well, not, well, not, not one not of the venomous ones, one, though. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> yeah, not that one. <laughs> yeah, so I should probably just get a regular bunny rather than a bunny sea slug. <laughs> A regular bunny or a garden slug. <laughs> yeah, you can get those African land snails, don't you? People have those as, um, as pets, the, the, the enormous land snails. Yeah. yeah, and you get people like them crawl all over their face because <laughs> the snail gel is meant to be good for you, isn't it, or something? And you think, yeah. Probably not. not. Oh. <laughs> but, um, one cool thing about my sea lemon, again, because I'm slightly obsessed with them, is uh, they belong to like, this certain group of sea slugs that their gills are actually around their anus. Mm-hmm. so you've got their anus and they've got these like frilly gills around <laughs> it and if you see them under the water you can almost see those really well they're really feathery so yeah essentially it's breathing like right from around its bum which is lovely so... <laughs> 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 all right thank you very much alice um and now jason is going to tell us about algorithms yeah so following on from the uh, the sort of debacle that happened with the a-level results over the um over the summer with the offquel al- algorithm we got Tamanda Hart- Harkness, who um, who's written a lot about this sort of thing in big data, 
to have a dig into what exactly went wrong with the A-level results um, and the algorithm. So just for a bit of background, basically, um, Ofqual got um, commissioned by the government to make a, an algorithm that predicted and assigned A-level results to students. But when the results came through, 40% of students got grades lower than they were predicted by their teachers. So in, in some cases, it was quite severe. They'd go down from getting a, you know, a, a, an A down to a C or something like this. So obviously, they were pretty miffed about this. But um, once you look into it more, you saw that there was also a big disparity between the results awarded to state students and private students. And there was also like your more sort of rarer, perhaps su subjects that are less popular amongst uh, the, the lower class students, such as classics and law. They also had slightly inflated grades. So um, obviously there was, there was something going on that this didn't work. And in the end, they ended up uh, having to just say, sorry, this didn't work. We'll, we'll just go back to using the, um, the grades that the teachers predicted. But um, after all this, Boris Johnson came out and said, oh, it was, it, was the, um, it was the fault of a mutant algorithm, he called, I think was the phrase that he used. But of course, it, the algorithm didn't just suddenly develop consciousness and go rogue. It was, it was <laughs> you know, it was, it was programmed by professionals and um, that's sort of the, the crux of the idea of Tamandra's piece, that, um, you know, algorithms are just algorithms and they do what they're programmed to do. So it really, it really kind of, for, for me, I think algorithms are obviously, we, we know that they're, they're everywhere, kind of making lots of decisions from us, from simple things like your car insurance mm. uh, to your, your, your mortgage rate, et cetera. So it, it kind of, it thrusts, this idea that um, algorithms might not be so fair, uh, in a in a very human sense, they might not seem fair uh, into light. Mm. And so, it wasn't so. So, in, in the case of uh, the off call thing, they they were they were sent, it, it, it sort of materialised that it, it just it essentially it was doing a fairly accurate job, but it had it had, it, it ignored yeah. sort of outstanding students in bad schools was was were, they were one of the big yeah. victims right yeah so it really sort of highlights um one of the big downfalls with the, with the way that we currently use and program algorithms in that they're great for um predicting wider trends you know like traffic flows or even you can use them for um detecting ab abnormalities and medical scans in fact they outperform uh, even trained human doctors. But when it comes down to the individual level, they can make really serious errors like they, they did in this case with the um, the, the students from, from working class backgrounds uh, or from, um, you know, less well-performing schools generally, getting severely penalised for those larger general trends. And they're quite good. Um, you mentioned the medicine. I, I remember we reported on... Um, this might have been last last year where they, they you can feed patient red records into a, a machine learning algorithm which is just another type um an algorithm where they effectively the computer decides its own set of rules and parameters uh yeah and, it, and, yeah. It, and it, they're more they're better than doctors aren't they at, at predicting mm, yeah. what you're going to get 
Yeah, and it's sort of it's, that's really interesting because it's one of those things. No, no one really knows why. It's just like they work, but exactly how they're working and why they're performing so well, it, it still remains a little bit unclear. But there's another. There's um, I don't know if you've heard. There's like this uh, pred poll future crime predicting algorithm that was in the news a while ago. That's back. a really good name. Uh, they were using, um, some states in America re- were using it to uh, predict future outbreaks of crime. But um, it basically got skewed towards uh, ethnic minorities and people from lower, the, the same story, right? People from lower socioeconomic backgrounds. Um, so a lot of a lot of the, uh, the the authorities that were using that actually scrapped it. So how was that supposed to work? How are they supposed to be able to predict, you know, individual events based on, on yeah trends. see that see yeah that that's where it, it falls down a little bit right because that it's just certain areas certain times certain scenarios that they that they fed in based that's like a, one thing that Tamandra says about um uh the, the algorithms her piece is that you basically you can only use data from the past so that's you know there's, there's no room for, for maneuver in, in that sense in that it's just only past of course that's how they work but um that's part of the the kind of innate mm, she had a she had a good example think. didn't she where uh you know you could say that say say you know most murderers are men but it doesn't mean that most men yeah, are murderers yeah. you can't just pick a random guy on the street and say yeah, so well you're probably a murderer so yeah. the algorithm says off you go <laughs> Yeah, she said nine nine out of ten murderers are male, which is that's yes. I mean, I was quite surprised with that, but yeah. Then she's like, "Well, you know, that's our piece of information, but it's all about context, right? How do you use that piece of information if you want to use it in something like one of these future crime predicting or or criminal profiling?" Mm, it's a big algorithms. it's the big issue, isn't it? Because especially with the in the medical um, cases, um, the we have to sort of trust them uh, and that's a big problem so we know that these algorithms are really good at identifying you know okay this patient just based on their their records are likely to have this kind of cancer we don't know necessarily because it's a machine learning algorithm and and that means that it is you know come to that conclusion based on its own set of parameters and rules we're not entirely sure how it comes to that conclusion but we just know that it's you know 30% better at doing that than a doctor. And if and if we don't find a way to trust them, then we can't actually benefit from that knowledge. So with this um, algorithm, um, is there actually a way we can improve them? Or is it just the way they're built, it's probably always going to be wrong? Um... Yeah. I mean, well, that's a really good question. But the, I mean, there are some... So basically, what what how this one worked, the off-call one worked, is they, they kind of averaged out... Uh, schools results for the last three years um you know nationally and then by school and then they um they got the students within the individual schools graded you know from who's who's the best who's the worst at this particular subject and then just sort of used that to divvy up all of the grades so you could have been in a situation where you were in a perhaps a poor performing school you were the second best student you know say you you got a stars for everything but because previously the the performance was much lower you you're 
grade would have, would have been um, adjusted down for that reason. So it's, I don't know how they would make something like this work. It's like uh, Tamanda says in her piece, like it sort of really falls down when, well, I don't know what you're saying, 10 GCSEs per student. So in order to get the fine detail of something like that accurate, I think would, would really be a tall order. Okay, thank you very much, Jason. Uh, and now, last up, I'm going to tell you about plug-in hybrids. So in September, there was a report that was released by the campaign group Transport and Environment. And they said that plug-in hybrid electric vehicles actually emit, um, on average, more than two and a half times as much carbon dioxide as official test values claimed. The original lab tests claimed that plug-in hybrids uh, emitted 44 grams of carbon dioxide per kilometre. But Transport and Environment, uh, they studied 20,000 vehicles in real-world conditions. So they took the fuel efficiency data from 20,000 plug-in vehicles just being driven around in the world. Um, and they found that on average, the carbon emissions are actually around 117 grams of carbon dioxide per kilometre. So that works out at about 2.6 times more than the official values. Now, a self-charging hybrid uh, would emit about 135 grams of carbon dioxide per kilometre. And an average internal combustion engine car would emit about 165 grams of uh, carbon dioxide per kilometre, so not actually that much more. So if someone bought their vehicle based on these the, the lab test values, they would uh, be expecting to save you know, over 100 grams of carbon dioxide per kilometre. But in reality, it's only about 50. So that's, you know, they're like immediately halving the amount of carbon dioxide that they're saving. So the so the different so just the, so the different car types if someone's not familiar so we've got the plug-in hybrid and so that is and correct me if I'm wrong that so that we're talking about the the type of car that has a battery and an electric motor that you can go to you know the service station and plug in and charge up and then what's now sort of becoming called the, the self-charging that's one that you can't plug in um, but you know like a say a Toyota Prius. Um, you drive around and and the regenerative things like regenerative braking kind of harvest energy and charge the the um the battery back up and so their their study was saying that these the plug-in ones the ones that have these sort of 30 mile range batteries um they were the ones that sort of the chief offenders were they yeah that's right dan so you're supposed to be able to drive about up to about 20 miles i think on zero emission mode. So that's just using the, the battery motor, not using your engine at all. Um, but this report by Transport and Environment actually found that um, in many cases, you can't use the zero emission mode at all. So they have some quite um, surprising uh, examples um, of various different models of car. They found things like if it was too cold outside, uh, it would have automatically switch to the um, the engine or if you had your rear windscreen heater on it would switch to the engine mode or <laughs> yeah things like that so um, you know if you have too many like app, uh, devices on at the same time it'll switch to your engine mode so what that means is people 
uh, who you know should be able to do their commute for example you know low speeds um short distances entirely on zero emission mode couldn't actually use it at all um so that is one quite big reason why um these emissions are so much higher than expected but another one um that surprised me a bit more actually was that apparently uh they believe that uh most people who own these don't actually charge them up. They just use <laughs> the engine. <laughs> oh, no way. <laughs> yeah, so that seems a bit weird to me. Like, why would you buy, um, a, you know, an environmentally friendly car and then not use it? Um, so I spoke to Dr. Ian Walker. He is an environmental psychologist at the University of Bath. And I, I asked him this question. Um, and he said, well, the first thing we need to ask is are people actually buying plug-in hybrids because they care about the environment? His team have done some research into car buying and people's um, priorities when they're buying cars. And he says that a lot of people do say when they're buying a car, uh, environmental considerations are are a concern for them. But they actually found that it's quite low down in the list. So he calls it a tertiary consideration. So you've found your price range you found the type of car that you know it does everything you need it has you know boot space or whatever else that you need and then once you get down your your final few then uh, people will say well which one's more environmentally friendly um so people are actually in general less concerned with environmental considerations than they than they say they are um but a second factor which actually actually probably uh, contributed quite a bit was that the government uh, offer a grant to buy a plug-in hybrid car. So you can get up to, I think it's £3,000 off the cost of a plug-in hybrid car. But as he points out, no one actually checks if you're using it right. So you can just get this car for cheaper and drive it as as a petrol car instead. And they're probably quite future-proof when it comes to... Um, cities starting to sort of consider what cars can can't enter their limits mm-hmm. um, down to pollution. So because if they're if they're on paper doing this this you know their pollutants are at this level, then they're probably fine. But like you say, in reality, it's probably two or three times that uh, they get away with. Yeah, it. yeah, that's um, right. I, um, I have to admit, I I thought they were quite a quite good idea uh, when they first came about uh, because. You had a lot of what we call, uh, without naming any brands, Chelsea tractor type cars. Uh, you know, those big four by fours that mm-hmm. uh, you see on the school run more than anywhere, which, you know, might be an unfair characterization, but they're, they're in the city centres. You know, um, the, the biggest thing they have to scale is the curb, uh, spewing out loads of pollution and um, CO2. And I thought, oh, well, actually, if, they, if these models have that, then maybe for that 30-mile trip, they could just turn off on the electric. But actually, it's pretty surprising that they just ignore that uh, mm-hmm. and roll around. Well, it, it might be that in certain lab situations, you can get it to work, but um, it, it sounds like it's pretty tightly controlled in, in lab tests. So it's probably in real life. You know, if you're going to test drive a plug-in hybrid, try and make sure that you can actually get it to run on zero emission mode before you buy it. Yeah, I mean, I expected the real world performance to be different from the lab 
performance. But I've got to admit, I'm pretty shocked that if you turn on the heated rear window, then you can no longer use the motor. That yeah. seems crazy to me. Mm -hmm. um, so Dr. Ian Walker, was. Uh, I was asking him whether or not he thinks that, you know, we should, it's worth buying these plug-in hybrids, given that they're getting on for almost as polluting as, you know, self-charging hybrids or even internal combustion engines. Um, and he... Well, he didn't really answer my question. What he said instead was that he thinks we're looking at this the wrong way. He thinks that people often get caught up in the argument of, should I get a battery a battery electric vehicle? Should I get a hybrid? You know, what, what should I do? Um, when he thinks that the questions we should be asking are more, more like, why do we all need a car? Do we all need a car? And how can we change our lifestyles so that we don't all need a car? So, do uh, who here has a car? Do any of you have a car? No. Mm, bicycle. No, not anymore. Mm. I have a city car club outside my uh, apartment uh, that I that I use. Uh, but actually, I, I have to admit, I am kind of looking for a car at the moment. Uh, and one of the so this is what I sort of think. I think you can probably you can surely do a lot when you look at because I'm looking at these things like what are the pollutants just because. Um, I, I I admit it's probably not a primary concern, but it is a sort of something I think I think about, and um, it just generally seems much better if you just get an old second-hand car that was headed towards being recycled and dumped, and all of the pollutants that come with that. Get a bit of life out of that, and then move on. And and yeah, I think um, we're we're quite fortunate to be based in Bristol, which is very easy to kind of get around by bicycle and things like that but if i was in london well i wouldn't get a car anyway <laughs> for london but you know uh, for the rest of the country it's not quite so easy is it mm -hmm. and it's interesting that you uh, bring up getting around in bristol because um one thing that i i think about bristol is that the public transport is not laid out well at all and i think that is actually a big hindrance and part of the reason why um so many people around here have cars bristol actually is massive massively exceeding air pollution limits um and i think part of that is based on the way that the public transport is laid out um and if you look at a map of the uh bus routes going through bristol it's laid out sort of like a bicycle wheel so you have the the city center in the middle and then sort of spokes of all the bus routes going out outwards um, and what that means is, if you want to go from one side of the city to the other, you have to go through the centre. So there's no, you know, there's no routes going around. There's, um, so if you if you want to get from one side to the other, it takes forever because you know this city centre is obviously going to be the busiest part, um, and it's it's much much faster to go out around the outside. So if you're living on one side of Bristol and you work on the other side of Bristol. Are you going to sit on a bus for an hour and a half or will you just get a car and do it in 25 minutes? Um, and I think that's actually probably a big um, problem that it is stopping a lot of people from moving from cars to public transport. Personally, I think the way forwards is that public transport all around the country needs completely revamped. We need to be pushing people towards public transport if we really want to reduce our carbon emissions. And one example of that is that if I want to go and visit my parent house, I have to get two buses and then a train and then a tube and then another train and then a bus on the other end as well. And 
I mean, it's fine. It works. But I mean, if you've got loads of bags and the last train, the, the cheapest train is, you know, gets you in at 11 p.m. and, it, you know, it costs you £100, then you start to think, well, what if I just got a car and just drove it? It'll cost me much less. It'll take me the same amount of time, if not less, because I won't be standing around on platforms. Um, I can take as much baggage as I want. I can take people with me. Um, so, yeah, I think that we really need to be just completely revamping the public transport system so people don't just go, well, what if I just get a car? Yeah, I suppose that's that's one of the issues with these uh, these sort of studies and these conversation pieces is it puts the onus on sort of individual responsibility of, uh, the buyers and the owners when actually there's a much bigger picture that's often missed out that means that these individuals can't you know they don't have options to take public transport when the public transport isn't sort of serving them so actually there's a there's a much uh, bigger piece um, of sort of transport uh, development that needs to be really really done if we're going to actually you know make a dent on these targets so thank you very much for listening to this episode of the science focus podcast Uh, The November issue of BBC Science Focus magazine is out now. Also in this issue, we look into long COVID, Michael Mosley explains how to manage seasonal affective disorder, and our panel of experts answer your questions. Thank you for listening to the Science Focus podcast from the BBC Science Focus magazine team. We're the UK's best-selling science and technology monthly, available in print and in several digital formats throughout the world. Find out more at sciencefocus.com or look out for us in your app store.